So risk equals consequence times likelihood. So now just imagine, I'm like, yeah, kids, don't worry. You can take your mask off. We're walking down a big open sidewalk. There's not a lot of people around. And that guy comes down and he sneezes right in my face and I get sick. The consequence is so dramatic in that instance, while the likelihood might be small. So what's the cost of me keeping a mask on as I walk down the street with the chance of walking into somebody? The cost is super low. Hi, everybody. My name is Tom Scott. Uh, welcome. Fourth of July weekend. Uh, it's Fourth of July time. I can't believe it's that time again. Um, mostly because I sort of, for some reason, I had this psychological sense of COVID will end. The summer will start. <laughs> we'll do summer and then we'll have the Fourth of July. <laughs> Instead, it's like, here I am in the garage. Here comes the Fourth of July. And we're all being told right? to stay home. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, 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 as usual, I don't know exactly how to um, consume or, or consider the news of the world. And let me just add that there was a moment earlier this week, um, and I think I'm still there, but um, I was very cognizant of how, how much I was there earlier in the week, um, which is... This world is completely chaotic. Like, I don't know where anything in this world stands. And just as an example, like, what's the Republican Party? Who's on the right? What does the left stand for? What's next with George Floyd? What's next with COVID? Um, what's going to happen to the economy? Are the kids going to school? I could go on and on and on. You know, there's just so many things going on. And it does feel to me like we're now all speaking a form of psychobabble. Now, I just want to add that in part because of the show, because people communicate with me about the show through social media, I'm more in Facebook in particular than I used to be. And Facebook is a mess. I mean, it is just a mess. The, the back and forth and the things people say and the things that they post, it's just like, why, how can that be enjoyable to somebody? Now, I understand why it's a dopamine rush. Like I understand the, the car wreck aspect to it. I'm not seeing the, the joy or the information side of, of what it is. So anyway, I just said a lot, but, but I really, in my whole life, I've never felt so strongly, and it may just be an emotion of, of sorts, but I think there's actually a lot of logic in it, where I felt like, what is this country? Like, what is this moment? We are, uh, yeah, I mean, we're leaderless, we're rudderless. We don't know which way the oceans are moving. You asked a lot of great questions. We don't have a lot of the things that often give us solace. We don't have sport, unless you want to watch MMA all day or South Korean baseball. Um, and, and to your first point, we thought that perhaps this would be some degree of return to normalcy, and it's not. Um, and then you have like these memories we have, right? Fourth of July with your friends, huddled together, drinking beer, trying to find the cold beer in the cooler that's full of melted ice, watching fireworks go off. Uh, and, um, you know, for some of some people, maybe they'll get to do that, but it's going to be in a very different circumstance. You know, I, I, I was, I think I mentioned this before, I was walking through a Home Depot the other day, and most people have masks on, 
And it just sort of struck me like, holy shit, I'm walking through a Home Depot and everyone has masks on. Like we are, I mean, obviously we know what we're in, but if you really pull back and look at what's going on here, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Someone wrote recently that it's an omnidemic, meaning everyone's having their own personal experience and that different, different um, groups, different minority groups, different socioeconomic groups are experiencing this very differently. Different states are experiencing this very differently. Different countries are experiencing this very differently. Um, and, um, and then we all individually are experiencing differently. Some of us know people who have died. Some of us don't. Some people think it's a hoax. Some people know it's not. And that swirl, that chaos, that it's very ripe for disinformation and it, it, it creates it creates a deep unease. So, you know, my barometer for this is my, my children. And I won't say which one of them, but one of my children, and my youngest is six. So we have six, 11, and 14. One of them um, hid himself away in this rental condo the other day and was crying. And he's a very, very with it, smart boy. And uh, one thing's been different here. The CNN has been on the TV all day uh, because of some folks that we're with like to watch that. And we don't watch that generally. So he's seen a little bit of that. He's well aware of what's going on, but he was crying. And it took a long, long time to get him to understand, to explain to me why. And he said, I'm afraid that all my friends will die and I'll never see them again. Um, and I think that we as adults know that we, ra we rationally know that's not the case, but, um, it's not, you know, it's scary for him. And I think a lot of us have fears that are, you know, in that direction, right? Like what's really going on here? And we know everyone's not going to die. Um, but it also makes us very, very ripe for other scary news. So you saw oh my gosh, there's a new H1N1 virus coming from China. Like, wow, like we're on razor's edge. I'll leave it at that. Anyway, he was fine, by the way. <clears throat> and then he explained he was also very sad. He didn't have a school work packet. So we're going to find a printer. And we're going to print out his work packet. So it was like a sad news and an inspirational <laughs> thing he was upset about too. I've been through the work packet panic before. I know what that, <laughs> I know what that is. You know, and as I look at this today, before we came on, I just took another look at sort of some of the headlines. You know, what's going on in Hong Kong is really intense. Um, yeah, it sure is. The, uh, you know, there's a headline here. Hundreds who served under George W. Bush will endorse Biden. Yep. You know, they're going to do it in sort of a collective format. Um, and, uh, and it goes on and on. I mean, obviously the COVID numbers. Let me ask you a COVID question. Um, I know the president took a lot of grief for the numbers are going up because they're doing more testing. I think I mentioned this to you the other day, and it is sort of a silly point on one hand, but on the other hand, isn't that true? Aren't we doing a lot more testing now? Yeah, well, first, he said it twice. So the first time he said it, I said, he can't be that stupid. He said, uh, I, you know, he said, we, we should get the exact quote, but it was, the more testing we do, the more cases we find. So I've told them to slow down the testing. And then his spokesman came out and said he was joking, which is their trope. You know, he was joking about injecting disinfectant. Well, we all watched the video. He wasn't joking at all. He was joking about 
more testing, uh, stop the testing because that equals more cases. He wasn't joking at all. He then said it again the next day. So when, it, when coming out of his mouth, we have two chances of looking at it. It appears this man thinks about testing the way you think about testing pregnancy. If you don't test a woman who's pregnant, she's not pregnant. If you don't write down the number of school shootings, you don't have school shootings. Something like something absolutely just makes no sense to any of us like that. Now, is it true that you find more cases, thereby you have the ability to give more treatment and save more lives and reduce the virus more if you test more? Yeah. Is it true that by testing more, you're going to find more cases? Yes, it is. If you test zero, you find none. If you test everyone, you find them all. Um, now, the, the question that I think you're asked, well, that you are asking is, for example, Florida. Florida appears to be in really dire straits. Like the disease is going straight up in Florida. Um, is that because of more testing? Yes. Is it because of more disease also and disease growth? Also, yes. So the disease is actually organically growing in an alarming rate in Florida and a bunch of other states, including where I am today in Idaho. Is that just because we're finding more cases from testing? Absolutely not. It is really, truly growing. Yeah, the quote is, if we stopped testing right now, we'd have very few cases. That's just, a, I think there's a grammatical challenge within that sentence. There's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but uh, you can sort of interpret it in, in a variety of ways. Um, and so in, in Idaho, for example, just and I know that there's there's not a ton of science here, but when what you observe is how different is the, is it than what you would have observed back here? It's very different, but I but I it's not one where where you anyone would walk around and go, oh, my God, look at these idiots. It's not that by any measure. It's, you know, shared consequence. They in Idaho, even now. There's a great irony for us being here. Um, we are in the state with, I think, the fastest growing caseload per capita. And we left the state with the fastest reducing caseload per capita. So Connecticut has done an extraordinarily good job. Governor Lamont will get great kudos for what he's done. He's a friend of mine, so obviously keep that in mind. But the, the numbers don't lie. Idaho has the fastest growing count, but very different N, very different numbers. So in Connecticut, you know, you have tens and tens of thousands of cases. Idaho, I think we're still below 10,000 cases. So people don't know people who've died. It's not really hitting folks, et cetera, et cetera, yet. And I hope it doesn't, but statistically it will. So I went into a bike shop the other day. I had my mask on. You know, we, I was socially distanced. They had the right signs in the door. They limit the number of people in the store, but no one had a mask on. And these are the people who work there are bikers, right? They're super fit. And we talked about the disease and one guy was concerned about long, long, uh, long-term lung damage. Uh, other than that, there wasn't a lot of concern. So they're, and they're just, they don't, they haven't seen it yet. So no, there's not as much mask wearing at all. Um, we walked down the street the other day, yesterday to get some ice cream with the kids. We all had our masks on and instead here's, here's what was interesting. Instead of people looking at us like we were, we were the alien other because we had masks on and they didn't. A lot of people actually who had masks in their pockets or masks in their hands put their masks on when they saw us coming. 
So I think, you know, from that little experiment, um, the word, the words, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty clearly understood now that wearing a mask is at least a social good, if not a biological necessity, a medical necessity. Yeah. Is the, um, if you were going to outline, and I, I don't know if that you have any, do you have any different views on just be behavioral patterns? I mean, I give you here, here, here was a, a line I heard a lot this week. Um, you need like a lot of heavy incoming virus to get it. Yeah, that, we talked about that before. I mean, we, we hope that's right. Um, we don't know the answer to any, we don't know the answer to that question for sure, but there's a lot, a lot of anecdotal evidence that says me walking down that street in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, an infected person walks by me. I walk by them. We exchange, you know, just resp respirated air. He's infected. I'm not. Do I get infected? So there's first, first of all, the question of where is that person in his viral load, right? So how much virus is in him? How much is he expirating? Um, then the question is, how's my immune system? It's strongly believed that your immune system can, can create an initial assault against initial insult. So if a little bit of the virus gets in my nose, there's a belief that my initial immune system can battle off a small insult, a small, call it a dose of the virus from that exchange, and that I walk away completely unscathed. And in that case, if you tested, you, would have, you wouldn't show up? No, and you do not, I would, thank you, and you do not come up later as seropositive. You didn't go through enough of an immune generation to be able to be to create the antibodies for future um, defense against a disease. So in that instance, what we understand now is most likely not a problem. Now, what if alternatively he sneezes right at me and it and I get a ton of spittle on me and he is at peak viral load and he happens to be a super spreader. So some people and it's not clear if it's their biology, if it's literally their mouth and throat, the way they speak. Some people spread 10 times more than other people. I, my guess is it's like close talkers who actually just literally the physics of their mouth, just a lot of spittle coming out, loud, close talkers, a lot of expiration. Um, so let's imagine, boom, I just get hit with this huge amount of big, huge, disgusting sneeze right on my face. Now you're starting to like, wow, okay, maybe you could get infected that way. Now, when you, science is inarguable, confined space, longer term exposure, lots of expiration, you're going to get sick. And the case study that really made this clear to me was about a choir in a church where basically everybody there got, a, got sick because of one person. So just again, keep, you know, we, again, we learn through models, we learn through stories, we don't learn through stats. So just as you think about these things, think about two dynamics. Think about the um, meat processing plant, right? Close proximity, many hours, cold, damp, no UV light, 
uh, and people right next to each other, it rips through the, the, the meat processing plant spreads a disease. Think of a prison, high density, it rips through prisons. Think about uh, low income, high density housing families, you know, three people per bedroom, it rips through those areas. Okay, so that's where it spreads. And then this choir, you're inside a room, you're singing, you're, you're spending a lot of respiration back and forth, like that's high, high spread. It turns out the protests, thank God, have not been cause of large spread. Why? You're outside. There's UV light. There's wind motion. You know, the, it's not sitting in one area getting denser and denser. Now, also do note in protests, people are yelling, talking very loudly. There is a lot of expiration. So, and by the way, there was a pretty good amount of mask wearing in the protest so far as you could tell by looking at videos. So, so yeah, we do believe now the problem with all this, Tom is, and look, we went through this with my family yesterday, walking down the street in Idaho. One of the kids says, well, wait, we're outside. We don't have to wear masks. Like, no, no, no. Like, so maybe everything I just said is true. We don't know for sure, but everything I told you is, is, is probably correct. So far as we understand now, we are very, very bad at risk analysis. There was an article in New York Times that had exactly that headline today, which kind of made me smile because we said this in our first meeting, right? Um, humans are bad at, there's a better word, bad at, bad at, you know, risk analysis, whatever it is, because we forget consequence, right? So risk equals consequence times likelihood. So now just imagine, I'm like, yeah, kids, don't worry. You can take your mask off. We're walking down a big open sidewalk. There's not a lot of people around. And that guy comes down and he sneezes right in my face and I get sick. The consequence is so dramatic in that instance, while the likelihood might be small. So what's the cost of me keeping a mask on as I walk down the street with the chance of walking into somebody? The cost is super low. Throw a breathman in, by the way, so you don't get mask breath. I know that's something. I, I pride myself on not having bad breath. Like it's, you know, all of us, like it, I freak out if someone tells me I have bad breath. It happens like once a decade. I'm like, oh my God, I feel so bad about it. I want to call everybody up and apologize. So... You know, mass breath is a problem. So throw a breath mint in or double scrub your teeth before you go. Don't drink a cup. As I learned yesterday, don't drink a cup of coffee and throw a mask on. You'll be tasting that cup of coffee for an hour. You know, so I'm going to use some bad science. Um, uh, the Connecticut's doing great. Connecticut is doing great. Statistically speaking, Connecticut's doing great. So that would, so, so one, uh, if, you know, A plus B transitive property thing I would do here is I would say, OK, so then therefore, if I observe the behavior of people in Connecticut, the behavior of people in Connecticut seems to be functional. It seems to work. And that and, and what I see in Connecticut is just for example, I have not been in Starbucks for more than 15 seconds and I go every day. Now I order ahead. When I'm in Starbucks, I've not once seen anyone without a mask not one time everyone has on a mask every time i go in and out they're not very close to me i get my coffee now i spray my coffee with alcohol because i'm sort of a freak about it okay so that's that and that's the time each day where i'm the biggest interactive with people now i do the similar thing in the supermarket i go to the supermarket they've got the hand sanitizer at the door i put on the mask i sanitize my hands i shop in peace i stay away from people and then I leave and I get back outside, I, do, I wash my hands again and I go on my way. The one other thing I want to point out is that in my town and in with your town, they've closed what is effectively the main street 
for um, or parts of the main street for dining. And the dining protocol is you walk in and out of the outdoor dining with mask. When you're seated, you do not wear a mask. Your servers wear masks. And that's kind of life. I mean, you know, I, I'm, let me throw one more thing in there. The gym. The gym I don't get. Okay, so I go to the gym almost every day now. And I, wor I wor have worked out, worked out outside 100% of the days. Me and Joe, another guy I know, are the only people who work out outside. That I don't get. I look I at that. Get, I, I don't like, get that at all. And I'm going to text the governor today and remind him of that. I mean, I'm sure he knows that, but um, I don't get that at all. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in there every day. And when I so I have to go in to get my equipment, come out, do my workout and then bring it back in in the end. And when I go back in and each time I wear a mask and I do the spray. And when I'm in there, I'm kind of like, whoa, I'm in the death zone here. I like, think these guys I, are all sweaty. So, so here's here's part of here's here's like here's why. Pick a state that isn't. Pick a city, basically, that isn't. You know, the New York metro area, Seattle, New Orleans, pick a state or city that hasn't had a crisis yet. So here we are, quarterly and Idaho, right? And there's two dramatically different things here versus what's going on in, for example, New York metro area. So one is people just aren't doing what you're doing, right? They're not doing the hand sanitizer program. They're not doing the mask wearing program. They're not doing the social distancing program, right? So those things are huge. It's not happening here. Because again, they, they just don't get it, right? Because they haven't learned it. Now, just a footnote. They were doing things like that in South Korea for years before SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 showed up because of their memory of MERS, just, as a, just to remember. So they were used to those behaviors in South Korea, as an example, and in Japan, and in a number of other countries that have done really well. They were used to those behaviors before Corona showed up. So guess what? When Corona showed up, they, they had a natural defense. They already were doing fine. You know, they already were doing those behaviors. And then when they were told to double down on those behaviors, it was very easy to do. And there's other reasons. And that's why many of those countries, all those countries, are doing beautifully. And we look like a freaking dumpster fire. And they look like a, gar a garden party, right? So, so that's, so that's part one. And, part and one. can I assume that they're behaving in the ways I just said? Is that generally what oh, they yeah. do? Yeah, yeah. 100%. So they go out to lunch too. They're not like all. Oh stuck no, they're not all locked in their room at all. Go, go, you South Korea, Japan. You know, Japan's a little different. They, they've been, they've been kind of open for business the whole time, but they've been doing really good mask wearing and a bunch of other, you know, the sanitation steps you took, and they're, they're fine. They're better, you know, much, 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 much better. Like orders of magnitude, logarithmically better than we are, embarrassingly better. Um, so that's part one, right? You have those just sanitary behaviors and you can think of a thousand analogies, right? So, you know, I don't know. I could find only examples I can think of are fairly disgusting, but we know that when we use sanitary behaviors, we don't get sick. Okay, fine. So that's part one. Here's part two. It's the amount of disease that's just endemic, right? The amount of disease that's floating around. And I'm trying to find the right analogy. So here's what I've come up with. So a vending machine at, you know, a vending machine. So I'm picturing, because we watch Friends all the time, the vending machines in Friends. Oh, sorry, I mean the office. So the vending machine, right? It's got 50 pieces of candy or chips or bags you can get. So imagine a vending machine that every interaction you have turns one of the dials and out drops whatever's in that machine, 
So in New York, at the peak of the crisis, the vending machine, of course, was in our example, was full. And like, you know, half, well, to be accurate, probably 20% of the things in the vending machine were a virus. 80% were an apple. So you pressed, boom, what do I get? Boom, one-fifth of the time, out dropped a virus. So now, now you've got a viral insult and you've got you. Are you ready for this or not? So boom, out comes a virus. Did you wash your hands? Did you wear a mask? Were you social distance? Were you able to graze by that one? No problem. Hey, victory. Now here, now, so now in Connecticut, Tom, ironically, that vending machine is like 5% virus, 95% not. Meaning a, a, the vast majority of people who are tested in Connecticut, less than 5% have the virus. So every interaction you have with a person, you know, statistically 95% chance, you're not actually confronting the virus. New York during the peak, there was a 20% chance, you know, four times more, 400% more likely you were confronting the virus. So you're at bat, you know, you, you, you had, you had, you know, when you press that vending machine, you were getting a virus opportunity, the chance to get infected much, much more likely historically in New York, you know, two months ago, now in Idaho, less in Connecticut. Now, thankfully, the numbers in Idaho on a gross volume aren't very high and a per capita volume aren't very high, but on a growth volume, on a growth basis, they're quite high. So again, you better as the disease. And so what ends up happening? And this is, I hope I'm not losing you, but not, I hope I'm not losing the audience here, but what ends up happening on a large scale basis is you get to where a leader from the CDC two days ago said we are now in America, which is basically there's so much disease here now that a lot of the institutional public health tools will no longer work. What am I talking about? Mask wearing, absolutely. Hand washing, absolutely. Social distancing, absolutely. Must do, must do, must do. And they are really your only line of defense if you don't lock yourself at home. But testing and tracing, particularly contact tracing, probably will not work in America anymore. Why? There's just too much disease running around. There are too many outbreaks in too many places. So the end, that's on one side, and then on the other side, call that the demand side, on the supply side, the ability to, to supply that need, we do not have sufficient contact tracing skills in, in almost any state in this country. Maybe Massachusetts does. Maybe. So very few states have the ability to contact trace. The disease is so rampant now that many states are just not going to even try. So, so what we've talked about a lot is it's a whole lot easier to deal with these things early on in the progression. You have to nip it in the bud. We did not nip it in the bud. We now have a massive forest growing of this disease. The vending machine is very full and we don't have the ability to do some of the public health tools we need to do it. So as we've said over and over, it gets down to you. It's you not going in the gym. It's my kids wearing the mask on the street and it's the person serving me the food wearing a mask, etc. So it's totally and completely up to individuals right now. So just to be explicit, one of the leaders of the U.S. Public Health Service, uh, CDC, said last week, the, the disease is too rampant for us to do effective contact tracing anymore, right? It's really, really up to us now. Can we talk about, um, I, I want to get your feedback. I read the story about the bounty, Russian, Afghanistan bounties on U.S. soldiers. Um, it's one of these stories where depending on 
the source, the details. It could be a big story. It could be a medium story. It could be a small story. What do you know about it? Um, I guess a couple of things I might know that others don't know immediately is so quickly. The story is that the Russian government offered members of the Taliban or other people in Afghanistan bounties cash for killing American soldiers. Like, wow, that's pretty shitty, right? Um, you know, meaning just to be explicit, like, hey, Afghanistan private X or Taliban member X, if you go blow up a Humvee, you go shoot a sniper round into an American Marine or whatever it is, we'll give you 10,000 bucks, whatever the number is, which of course is the king's ransom in these countries. Um, so it's an assassination, right? Paid assassination. Russia's not at war with us. It's a war crime. No, it's just a fucking evil thing, right? So let's start with that. Now, here's what I know that maybe most people don't live with this kind of reality. That's not shocking. Um, covert, it's, it's horrible. It's illegal. It's wrong. America does not do that. Don't let anyone tell you, oh, we do that too. But they just got caught. Bullshit. We do not at all. Um, but in the dark world of covert activity, this isn't unheard of. Why does Russia want to do this? Is it because they want Afghanistan to win the war and kill American soldiers like in a one-to-one -one battle? No. It's because they want to keep us on uh, our toes. They want to keep us chasing our tail. They want to keep us in a panic mode. Why? Same reason they want to fuck with our elections. Same reason that they, they just, the more confused and desperate and panicked we are, the better it is for them. Just zero balance, just a zero sum balance of power equation by them. So that's why they want to do it. Um, now the question, so that's like, that's sort of, you know, paragraph three in the stories, paragraph one and two in the news stories in America are what did Trump know? And when did he know it? And what did he do about it? So the liberal media would like us to believe that Trump Here's here's what like the liberal media would love for us to believe right now. And they're teasing this. And I don't know if it's true or not. Trump fully knew this. The intelligence community came to him, gave him complete awareness that this was happening on date X. And then, you know, in the time after that, he continued to pander to Putin and be friendly to Russia. He never raised it. He never pressed them. And look, this soldier, this airman, this Marine was killed, assassinated in that bounty program by a Russian paid Afghanistani soldier during that program and, and Trump did shit about it. So that's like, that's the worst case scenario. We don't know if that's true at all. I think we, I think we understand now that American military members were killed by Russian paid assassins in this instance. That's really bad. What is not known yet, and it will clearly be known, unless they destroy their records, is if President Trump was briefed on this or not. Um, the director of national intelligence, who's nominally the absolute head of the in intelligence community, above the CIA, above the NSA, above the DIA, above all that, it's, and again, I say nominal because the system's not really been rationalized yet. That person came out with a press release uh, yesterday, I think, or two days ago, and said the president was not told of this. That person, the, the director of national intelligence right now, is a partisan selected, highly partisan person. He is not a proven long-term intelligence professional. 
And by the way, that's why his appointment was very controversial. Normally in these jobs, you don't really want a partisan as much as you want an expert a professional. And this guy is neither. He's a partisan. So um, that's, you know, that's the story. My, you know, so what has to happen, um, you know, it's pretty obvious. We have to figure out, I'm more interested in the reality versus the political reality. Uh, it, it's going to be muddy anyway about what Trump did know or didn't know. I think we are pretty clearly understand at this point, the man, apparently he talks 85% of the time during his intelligence briefings, right? We know he makes bad decisions. I happen to think he's, well, he, we know he makes bad decisions. And when he does rarely take his intelligence briefings, he doesn't listen, he talks and tries to prove to the intelligence briefer how smart he is on these topics versus having the best expertise in America presented to him so he can make informed decisions. He likes to spend this time apparently showing off to the briefers about what he knows. So he doesn't listen much anyway. So was it in what's called the PD, PDB, the President's Daily Brief, which is a very, very special document that's put together the entire intelligence apparatus every day focuses on what do we tell the president today? It's an amazing focus of intellectual effort. And that document, the PDB, is guarded like the king's treasure. I mean, it's, you know, the tiniest number of people get to see it. It's got unbelievable secrets in it. It's presented to the president. They work really hard on how to present it, who presents what. You know, there's a big dance around this. It's a ballet. And, um, and was it in there or not? We don't know. But if it was at all ever briefed to him, a competent leader who holds this holy mantle of power in America. And here's why it's holy. Here's why it's holy to be president of the United States. This example exactly. You are the ultimate safeguard in this instance for American lives. So if it had been raised with him one way or the other, and they said, hey, we're not so sure. Our confidence on this intelligence is this. Our sourcing's not so great. This is kind of how you determine if you listen to intelligence or not. A competent leader, and I don't know if he did or didn't, should say, hold on, stop. What? You're telling me that Russia has a bounty program, possibly even 10% likely on our troops? Get to the bottom of that right now. I need an answer to that. That's a humongous deal. Deal with it. And um, we don't know that he did that or not. But it, my guess is that's not the way he operates. And apparently that's not how he uses his intelligence briefings, to guide and direct. Instead, he uses it to show off. So... I mean, come on, what point are we going to recognize that this guy is just a total buffoon and it, it, it just sort of expect the worst? And that's about where it appears he's going to meet you on these issues. Sorry. I mean, I know that's a little more political than we've been, but this is an issue that really bothers me. Yeah. Having worked in and, intelligence and for a long, long time, uh, this is appalling. And my, my expectation is that nothing will come of it because it's just too muddy. And yeah, it'll stay much. muddy, and that's what it'll be. I think that's right. Um, and, but it also points to, so let's imagine that the honest answer is no, no one ever briefed the president. So now look, to be fair, if, if it was a really bad source, you know, walk-in, right? Some guy walks into the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan and says, or, you know, whatever, goes, I have this information, pay me for it, and his story doesn't hold together. This happens every day. People show up to the U.S. government and say, I have a secret, I want to tell you, you take care of me. It happens constantly. And so a big part of the front line of U.S. intelligence and U.S. diplomacy is fending off this disinformation, these, these liars. So let's imagine it comes and it's super weak, and it's not well-sourced, it's not reliable, there's no, there's no backup evidence, 
you could absolutely, it would be okay if that wasn't proven, or sorry, brought up to the president. What we learned, so the story that came out a couple days ago, the initial reporting said, America got turned on to this possibility because we found caches of cash, caches of U.S. dollars uh, in some F, in some Taliban um, strongholds that we overran, right? So, so we busted down the door in some Taliban room and found, you know, 10,000 U.S. dollars, which is a humongous amount of money for them to have, whatever the number is, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, I don't know. As we, ch- as we chased down where this cash come from, we came up with this reality that the Russians were paying bounties, right? So that was the initial story. That didn't really ring as true to me. That, and by the way, that wouldn't be that alone. You'd, you'd have a pretty hard time creating very, very credible intelligence around that to bring to the president because you'd only have human sources. You'd have a couple of young Taliban foot soldiers. They'd tell you, oh, yeah, the Russians gave it to us. Who's the Russian? I don't know, this and that, you know, et cetera, right? The news yesterday, which seemed more like the way America would have high confidence in intelligence, was about um, movement of cash out of bank accounts we know are controlled by Russians. So now you're getting into like what's called maybe more signals intelligence versus human intelligence, much more reliable generally. Uh, you can really audit the information. You don't have to see if, you know, Taliban foot soldier X is lying to you or not. You know, you're actually looking at the transfer numbers. And um, so that's that's what the intel was. And so if that's the case and someone didn't brief it to the president, that's a failure of leadership underneath the president. And that ultimately actually gets to a failure of his leadership for not having the right people in the right positions. And we saw that in the Navy with the Captain Crozier situation with the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Right. So Crozier probably made a good decision. He then got relieved by the acting secretary of Navy who proved to be a very incompetent leader. And he was like the third secretary of Navy in that position in the Trump administration because they were just a series of poor picks by the president over and over and over. I know I'm rambling. Last point. I would ask you to look at the the Trump cabinet positions, the people in national security positions picked by Trump, including chief of staff positions. You'd find every single one of them who has left has done so criticizing the president. So suffice it to say, he doesn't pick great people or which was what he'd want us to believe, uh, or they they are of some value and they come out and they criticize him later. But the, the leadership dynamic is clearly not working. And here's an example of where that may have failed to bring proper intelligence to the commander in chief at the time he needed it. There's a fair amount of talk about. He's going to bag it. No, I don't believe it. You don't believe it? No, I think. Um, I think his fear of what comes without presidential immunity is so strong. I think the Dunning-Kruger effect on him is so real, meaning he thinks he's much smarter than everybody else, meaning he thinks he can pull a trick on us that, you know, will make him win. I think his narcissism is so overwhelming. And I think the breadth of tools he has available to him is so vast and he knows that, that he's not going to give up without grabbing all sorts of clubs out of his golf bag, all sorts of weapons from his arsenal and flinging them at the situation to see what happens. I strongly believe this man does not want to get out of the Oval Office for a variety of reasons, one being he fears prosecution from the Southern District of New York, perhaps for crimes related to sexual activity or other things, And while he has the cloak of immunity, presidential immunity, which he has, 
you know, he's protected from that. So I think that is a strong motivator for him not to lose, not to walk away. Um, that might be a little shocking for people to hear me say that, but I don't say that. I say that based on talking to people who are aware of potential prosecutorial activity against him. Uh, so, no, I think nothing he, he can do in advance of that. Right. I, I, I the president apparently cannot pardon himself, I think, is what we learned right. during the Nixon administration. I could be wrong. Um, yeah. And but what he tried to do was fire the prosecutor from New York. He tried to oh, yeah. put a loyalist in that job. He went golfing with Adam Clayton Powell. I think that's his name. Head of the SEC. Is that right? And they had a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he announced rapidly he was going to fire the lead prosecutor at the Southern District of New York. So the SDNY, Southern District of New York, is also nicknamed the Sovereign District, nickname of New York, because they pursue things apolitically, historically. Most, you know, a lot of prosecutors' offices do. He was going to put a loyalist in there. I suspect the plan was get in there, figure out what kind of trash they have against me and crush it while I still am in power. And thereby I can reduce the chance of having trouble when I no longer have presidential immunity. That's my theory, not just mine. And, of course, that got foiled, and uh, he wasn't allowed to do that. There's a real conundrum about Attorney General Barr, who does not have the authority to fire that prosecutor, firing that prosecutor and claiming that the person who does have the authority to do it, the president ordered him to do it, then the president claiming, no, I had nothing to do with this. So it's a really a bit of a goat rope on that one. So that's one thing he could do. But look, but Tom, what I'm referring to isn't about what he does about that per se. It's about what he does to try to ensure he doesn't have to leave office. And so, you know, that gets to you know, probably some very untoward activities that we're going to see in the next couple months. And in fact, I've historically, I've said in the last few months that look for August, September, October, and, and into November, obviously, to be a really, really rancid time in America and a really horrible time for how we treat each other and massively, massively divisive, massively partisan. I was just reminded that because there will be so much mail-in balloting, that that time frame might move up. That if you wanted to embarrass the president, for example, an October surprise, they used to call it, maybe you should make it a September surprise. If the president wanted to do something on his end, instead of making it in October, maybe you should do it in September. So that, that whole world might accelerate a little bit too. We might, so it might be more like July, August, September versus moving that ahead one or two months where we're going to see a huge amount of ugliness. Um, that, that's what I think is going to happen. And so, I mean, you know, voter suppression by Republican governors, I think will be a big deal. Um, and um, I think the president's instinct, of course, is to divide. You know, that's where he that's where he's best. That's his best animal instinct. I think that's working against him now. So we'll see. So Hong Kong, um, the, I think I'm pretty correct in saying that if you, if you're a, if you, if you live in Hong Kong, you were raised in Hong Kong, you essentially live in a place that is not so unlike the living in the United States, right? The freedoms that we have in the United States, the, the, the financial systems we have in the United States, it's very much like growing up and living within the United States. And basically what China has done is China has made a move 
to make Hong Kong effectively exactly like China, which is to say, um, you know, if you if you make trouble, I'm going to bring you into China and put you in a jail in regular China. Like, that's how that's going to go down. A, am I, am I characterizing that correctly? And B, if I am right, imagine as an American how you would react to that. To me, it seems impossible that the culture of Hong Kong will ever accept the culture of China without, frankly, a lot of bloodshed. It may sound dramatic, but I just, I just don't see it happening. Um, yeah. So just quickly, just an edit. Previously, I misnamed the head of the SEC who Trump tried to put in as the lead prosecutor in SDNY. The name was Jay Clayton. Uh, so we tried to put in, not, not Adam Clayton Powell. Um, Hong Kong. Hong Kong's a real sad story, Tom. You're exactly right. <clears throat> um, yeah. So Hong Kong is very much like New York, you know, a year ago. Free speech, um, you know, pretty clear, pretty fair system of jurisprudence. And now through this accelerated and very assertive national security law promulgated by Beijing, they are now going to live under, as you well put it, you know, sort of like the same mandates, same laws as you'd have in Beijing, which means living under a totalitarian, totalitarian um, demagoguery, communist. And <clears throat> yeah, so it's really shitty. And there's, there's not much that's going to happen. So <clears throat> there's not much we can do about it. You have an optimistic view, it sounds like, which is that the people of Hong Kong, the culture of Hong Kong, couldn't, you know, will, will not in any near term be morphed into looking like the culture of Beijing or Shanghai. Now, like, to be clear, you walk around the streets of Shanghai, you don't feel like you're in a totalitarian state. You feel like you're in a thriving capitalist area in half of half of that's half that's half correct. But you also are in a place where if you get on your phone and try to access the wrong thing on the Internet, A, you can't because it's all locked down. There is no freedom of information. <clears throat> and B, if you write the wrong thing, you can go to jail for life. Or if you do the wrong thing, you can be. Um, executed by the state and they bill your family for the bullet, right? I mean, it is a, it's a harsh reality. It just doesn't appear to be until you scratch at it. And Hong Kong's headed in that direction. I'm not as optimistic as you that the culture and people of Hong Kong, the Hong Kongers, will be able to resist that for long. I hope that China is somewhat thoughtful and careful about how they implement the national security law in Hong Kong, how they implement this reintegration, that they're smart enough, at least pragmatically smart enough, not to just drop the hammer and crush everybody. <clears throat> but at the same time, they clearly are going to have to show that they're in charge now. So there will probably be protests today, tomorrow coming up in Hong Kong. Uh, they will have to be large or people won't do it. They're going to want to find safety in numbers in Hong Kong. And in those protests, I think the Chinese government will probably have to insist on the arrest of a few people and the, you know, what we would probably call, you know, really cruel treatment to them to show the people of Hong Kong, hey, you know, it's a new sheriff in town, it's a new set of rules. We'll see. And why do I say pragmatic? Because they still have to live in the International Court of Public Opinion to some extent, Beijing does. They still want to entice Taiwan into their borders eventually, although that they must know that's not going to happen peacefully. Um, and so ideally, they don't come out and act like complete rogues and crush everybody. We'll see. 
Um, but it, it's going to be fascinating and, and somewhat horrible to watch. Thank you. Um, it's very sad. You know, Jerry Cohen from NYU, who's one of the best experts on China and Hong Kong, wrote yesterday in a piece that um, didn't get enough coverage that, you know, he's, he's been doing this for 60 years. He's, there's really no one smarter on this from the American side. And he said, um, you know, the spirit of Hong Kong will survive. Don't worry. When she's out of office, this will be changed. Um, and I think that's another example of over-optimism. She's not leaving office anytime soon, unless it's feet first. And this is a, a new assertive China. So that's the, really the punchline. China, historically, via some of Mao's tenets, kind of lie, laid in wait, laid quietly and, and amassed its power and its arms and its economic strength, which it's done. And Mao encouraged this. And it, it, it always kind of sat back and didn't act very assertively. And that's changed. We've seen, we now clearly see a more assertive China. So the sleeping dragon has awoke to use some of the language of the conversation. And Hong Kong is one of the places where the talons or the flames have landed most hard. And we'll see, you know, how long that persists. So I would probably disagree with you that Hong Kong will come out of this with the same spirit it had a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess for me, I mean, for whatever reason, between what's been going on in the United States, I watched, I'm not done yet, but I'm watching the movie Reds again. I'm watching Babylon Berlin, which if which you Reds are you it, watching? The Warren Beatty. Oh, okay, wrong movie. I was thinking of um, what's that movie where the kids run up in the hills and they say Wolverines? Oh, yeah. Wolverine, yeah. Uh, Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Yeah, I love that. Um, but Reds is incredible, and then this Babylon Berlin is just so good. It's so well done. Three seasons. It's on Netflix. It's subtitles, but man, it really describes like the drama behind a um a revolutionary moment in in uh in germany um and then you know what's going on in our own country and and you know it's very hard for me to imagine people like us living under a regime a regime like you see in um in china but you know time will tell and these things are different let me mention one more thing um and then we'll go but uh you know mississippi Mississippi, the, the change in the Mississippi flag. It's been an incredible few weeks for this kind of stuff. You know, NASCAR, statues, and now Mississippi. You know, the Mississippi state flag with the Confederate emblem. Um, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing what's, what's happening right here. And, and, you know, I have to say and that, that for me, it's... Um, it's uh, overdue, but I'm not from the South. And I, you know, I, my perspective is, is different from many people's. It seems like the right thing to do. But let me just say why I, I, I'm so amazed by it is this is not the first run at this stuff. This has been going on as long as I've been alive. But this just in the last few weeks that this change has come fast and it's powerful. I, I yeah, amen. I mean, I am. Um... I have just zero, zero tolerance for a Confederate flag, right? It's a flag of treason. It's a flag of failure. It's a flag of slavery. It's a flag of genocide. I mean, it's fucking appalling that someone would wave that thing. Sorry, I keep cursing. But I just find that. I mean, what, what an emblem of idiocy and horror. 
And the thing that makes it even worse, as we know, is these Confederate statues and the application of the Confederate flag to the Mississippi flag and other flags was done well after the Confederate, after the Civil War. It was done as a move to remind African-Americans that the KKK lingers, that they are subject still to massive oppression, just to try to put fear in their hearts. It, you know, just a just evil. Right. Like. And many of the statues that were put up were of, of intentionally of the most racist and evil Confederate leaders, not of the even of the people who were excellent at at building the Confederacy on the battlefield. It was people who were the most atrocious to slaves. And that was done by the KKK. Many of those statues were put up for those reasons in the in the, the early and in, in mid 1900s, well after the war. So it's just appalling. Thank God they're coming down. Thank God this came off the flag. And shame on anybody who who pushed against it in the decades past. But yeah, you're, it's great. It's it's really it's it's terrific um, that we're finally getting there. And it it there's some lesson in here about how hard it is to get things done in this democracy. Um, you know that it's taken some of these statues have been taken down quote unquote illegally. Well, not quote unquote. They've been taken down illegally, but. I think by most people's measure properly, like correctly, like this should have happened so long ago. And, um, you know, this is what federalism. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's. Well, you know, Brian Stevenson, um, when he talked about, I think it was in his book, I've I've read his book, which I can't remember what it's called, Just Mercy. Um, And he describes that, you know, he would bring these cases in the late 90s. and they were mostly black men, mostly on death row, all certainly in his view and mostly proven so to be wrongly accused or wrongly convicted, I should say, of horrible crimes, often with the death sentence as a penalty. And um, the thing that he talks about is that, let's say he would lose a lot of these cases in the 90s and he'd retry them in the 2010s, let's say. Well, the thing he would say is like, the legal strategy was exactly the same. It's just the narrative of the of the world changes. The same legal facts meet a different fate as the narrative of the world changes. And so the narrative of the world is changing. I, I you know, one of the most impressive things in the last few weeks to me was NASCAR. Like they jumped on that and, and said, no, no rebel flags at NASCAR ever again. They got behind Bubba Wallace and like all marched in unison with him. And it was like, wow, bang, like we're going to we're going to confront this head on. And they did. I th- it was really impressive. We were talking the other day about some friends of mine and I. Apparently, George Floyd's four-year-old daughter said, my daddy changed the world. Not obviously entirely understanding what's going on in the world and sadly not having a daddy anymore, but saying my daddy changed the world. <clears throat> and, you know... There are potentially very, I mean, there, what we're talking about are silver linings on the slow motion murder of a defenseless man by our police force. The silver linings might be quite strong here. And we might be finally waking up to, as you put, as you put it, like the necessary cultural shift on some historical horrors that we have to just change. So maybe and end. Imagine if the George Floyd protests and all the social activation that's happened since his murder um, 
mobilizes more voters of any sort in this next election, um, that will have changed the world. When more people vote, Democrats win. If more African-Americans vote, historically, Democrats win. If more young people vote, historically, Democrats win. And historically, young people and African-Americans and other minorities don't vote at the same rate as older white people, same proportion. So there's, I mean, I think everyone knows this now, but there's this voter mobilization is the number one key for Democrats to win. If George Floyd's murder mobilizes more voters, that could be the way that Donald Trump loses and Joe Biden becomes president. And that, as George Floyd's four-year-old daughter put, could have changed the world. And it's not just America, right? The president of the United States sits on a mantle with influence across the entire world, obviously. So RP, um, she's six years old. Her name's Gianna, Gianna Floyd. And I have it. Let's just look at it real quick. I want to just, let's share it together. That's right. Daddy, Daddy said it didn't work. Wait, wait, wait. She did what? Daddy changed the world. Daddy changed the world. Daddy's changing the world. Very cute kid um, and powerful. It's sad. I remember when uh, when my friend John O'Neill died on 9-11, which is a whole other story, obviously. I called up um, a dear mutual friend of ours, and I had the sad news to report to them that they had found John's body. We, we were pretty sure he was dead. They found his body very soon after the tower had collapsed. And I called up, and John had died a hero, running in and out of the tower, saving people, well aware that that second tower was going to fall in his suit with his, you know, Bruno Magli shoes on, meaning not prepared for this. And he was pulling people out of the lobby. So I said to our mutual friend, at least John died a hero. Here comes another curse. And he said, fuck that. Go tell that to his son. Who's going to now not have a daddy. So while it's true that George Floyd's murder appears to be making a massive and positive impact on the world right now. That yeah. little girl's going to grow up without a daddy. So, uh, 4th of July, uh, I hope everyone has a safe one. All right, great. Happy, uh, I guess happy 4th of July to everybody then. Stay safe. Mm-hmm.